and welcome to Into the Aether, a low-key video game podcast. I'm Stephen Hilger. With me, joining us today in place of Brendan, is our good friend, composer of the theme, uh, recurring guest, Will Laporte. Will, thank you for joining me today. Hey, everybody. Uh... Full transparency, <laughs> we have been recording for about an hour, and uh, there were sudden technical hiccups that have erased our, our previous recording. So we're like... <laughs> We're in Act 2 mode, but now we have to sort of Groundhog Day a bit of what we discussed. Yeah, um, so I think Steven and I are going to backpedal a little bit, because our first session that was just tragically lost was nothing short of a Microsoft ad. That's We kept joking, like, this sounds like a Microsoft ad, and then Fate was like, fuck this. Yeah, and then gonna delete this. We recorded an ad for Xbox Game Pass for an hour, and then my Apple MacBook computer... <laughs> For the first time ever, completely crashed and shut off. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so Tim Cook told me to stop or else is what happened. Exactly. T- thank you, Tim, for setting us straight. Uh, <laughs> this will no longer be an ad for Microsoft. But I still would like, and maybe I'm tempting fate here. You know, <laughs> Zeus has already shown his wrath. But I have been informed, and I know directly based on our last conversation, <laughs> that you have recently acquired an xbox series s and i think the reason why we wanted to talk about that was not to plug the xbox but to sort of talk about what it feels like entering the sort of current gen of games for lack of a better phrase we talked about in the in the lost recording how like i think when we were kids and growing up not to be too you know nostalgic with roasting and glasses but i do think like the jump between consoles you know, from Super Nintendo to N64, the the pitch of we are now entering 3D was, I think, inherently kind of more exciting than more recent transitions. Like, I think I remember distinctly the feeling of uh, PS3 to PS4 and 360 to Xbox One. It felt like for me in my adult life, the ask of getting a PS4 and an Xbox One felt a little bit more arbitrary in some ways. And I think, you know, both of those consoles had great libraries and I think, you know, were more powerful, but it just felt like, oh, are we are we like a little bit too beholden to this model of like every five years, there's got to be a new box for no reason other than there needs to be. That was always the business model, but I do think in the earlier days of games, there was like so much unexplored that like every new system did have like, this one is a new dimension. This one can connect to the internet. You know, we were really in that era. And I'm curious how, you know, getting a Series S has felt, you know, has it felt like, oh, this feels like a new era Or have you felt more, you know, one thing we talked about a lot with the Series S in particular is the game preservation and the availability of more retro titles and also a lot of indie games on Game Pass. And I'm wondering just how that experience has been. Like, has it felt like kind of a new thing or has it felt more like you paid the price of admission, you know? So I realized just now that um, I've had my apple iphone 12 mini gonna make this an apple ad now so that tim doesn't get mad at me anymore (laughs) but i've I've had my phone for three years now because what i always do with my phones whichever brand i get um is try and use them for as long as they will last before they actively start breaking down and i have to get exactly what i do yeah i'm the same way half of it is like saving money some of it is laziness but 
a lot of it is because that feeling of when you get a new phone way later and it feels like jumping into the future is so like rewarding and cool. It is. Yeah. It makes it really feel new. And I feel like our friend Brendan and host of this show that, <laughs> that I'm sitting in for recently got a Series X, like recently upgraded and was yeah. selling his S and rather than, I guess, go through the trouble of trying to find a random stranger on Craigslist was like, hey, my buddy was looking for a new console and I ended up with it. And going from a Switch to a Series S really did feel like jumping into the future a little bit. Sure. Yeah. The first thing I did was I downloaded Game Pass and I downloaded Forza because I've been wanting to play that game for a few years, but never gotten the chance. I love when you were like, I, I just chose the character named Will by coincidence. I'm like, <laughs> no, no, no. The game knows your name. It's a yeah. jump scare. Which is terrifying, to be clear. Yeah. The character I, I don't know how it does, but I'm sure it pulls it from your like Microsoft account or something. The scariest part was that the character also looked like me. But what had yeah. a British accent? It felt like my evil twin. <laughs> <laughs> but getting that. dropped out of an airplane at the start of that game was so like was breathtaking. Sure, yeah. I do feel like I won the lottery a little bit in terms of having a novel experience with a quote unquote new console. Having skipped the like I skipped the PS3, I skipped the PS4, I never played a five, and I skipped the Xbox One, like that whole series. Yeah, I didn't get a PS4 until much later. Like I actually didn't get a Switch also until like a year after it came out. So like I got the PS4 in 2016 and that was about three years after it came out. And at that point, I think it was like I got a really good deal on it and it came with I think the, the package I got was Uncharted 4 the last of us remastered and then i also got overwatch and like those three that was a good trio to start with in the, especially at that time that you know the launch of overwatch was so exciting and and those two games were you know i hadn't played the last of us on ps3 and i hadn't played any uncharted so it did feel like oh my god like why is everyone not freaking out about this of course they freaked out about it years before <laughs> Uh, but I know that feeling of like catching up, you know, a little bit later and being like, wow, this is so incredible versus, you know, seeing that slow transition. I don't think that the PS5 like is an unimpressive piece of hardware or the Series S. Like both of them, I think, are really, you know, playing a game like uh, Ratchet and Clank on the PS5. That game looks like nothing else you know it it, it 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 really does feel like playable pixar and the series s too even playing older titles which i think we're going to get to a little bit later the way it like upreses them and also just kind of deletes loading <laughs> times which is kind of funny because even a, a more modern game like uh, one of the first games i played on the series s was yakuza like a dragon which was actually like one of the you know sort of launch titles but that game was made for the previous generation in mind so a lot of the loading screens would have like pictures of characters in the story and like a little bio about them but the loading times were so fast, you couldn't possibly read them. <laughs> so like, it's almost like watching old TV where like you could tell the pacing of the story had to account for commercials. It does feel like we're now at that point with loading times where like, that's, I think the biggest noticeable difference in this generation is like, they just aren't like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart is built around the fact that there are no loading times. That is a mechanic of the game. It's just like, look how cool it is to not have to load. But I'm glad you had that kind of, oh, look where games are at moment with Forza. I think that, that's a pretty, Forza is a pretty good like intro to where games are at now, at least in terms of fidelity. Yeah. Uh, and 
I played Forza and I loved it. I, I loved driving around in my all my fancy little cars. I'm trying to see if the car from the film Drive My Car is like in the catalog so that I can have it. Oh, um, nice. But the next thing I did was the opposite is instead of using Game Pass to play a new game on the Xbox Series S like Starfield or like Sea of Stars or any other star based game, <laughs> I uh, decided to purchase Fallout New Vegas and all of its DLC. Hell yeah. And start that game again. I did a similar, I mean, one of the first things I purchased was Oblivion, obviously. Um, but I also like, there is a really, uh, uh, we talked about this a bit too in the last recording, but Microsoft, again, veering close to the ad here, but like of the big three of Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft, like Microsoft has. I think done the most kind of by default. I think, you know, Sony and Nintendo, I think are pretty visibly bad at game preservation and in some cases actively fight against <laughs> it. Uh, but Microsoft has done a lot to like put everything they can in the e-store. Like the fact that I can get Soul Calibur 2 HD is amazing. Sonic Adventure 2. Banjo Tooie. Banjo Kazooie and Tooie are in. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of, and it, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about how it has felt is I think, ironically the series s for me has become like the modern retro console you know it's like the system i play when i want to play skyrim or new vegas which we're going to talk about in a bit it feels like the best place to experience a lot of those older games as well as like the plethora of indies that are available in game pass and the store as well uh, it does feel like you know, I, I think another thing we discussed, um, not to like retread our steps entirely, <laughs> but, you know, I think we are we are both rightfully trepidatious of fully embracing a subscription model. But I do think that Game Pass has helped games like Sea of Stars and other indies where it's like if you let people kind of experience a little bit of a game without having to like fully purchase it, you know, from go. I think it does kind of give those games a boost of popularity because a game like Sea of Stars has such a beautiful art style. You're probably going to be like lured to it and then check it out and then, you know, have a great time. So I, I think it has it, another good example of like a success story is Hi-Fi Rush, which I think I would argue like I don't know if that game would have done as well if not for the fact that it was just like readily available like day of announcing it exists. It does make me think about i know we're talking about indie games here but like hi-fi rush was a bethesda published uh by all <laughs> means you know i i guess sort of a triple a game maybe a double a game i don't i don't know exactly i mean the names there can be so ambiguous because like you can say indie and it's like a multi-million dollar company you know um or it could just be like one person in their room so all that to say like i do think that what i like about game pass is this idea that we can get kind of these shorter more focused games that are like genuinely exciting and not have this pressure of like eight years of marketing and and this you know promise of a game being like this is going to be the only game you play or think about forever you know, I think getting what I'd like to see from AAA is more stuff like Hi-Fi Rush and and like Ratchet and Clank, where it's like very, you know, high budget focused in and out experiences. And unfortunately for them, the only games that we play and think about forever both came out 10 and 15 10 years, years ago. ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. There is always a point uh, after game of the year where Brendan and I are like, it's become my favorite period for the show because we always get into like a weird phase 
between like January and March, you know, uh, I mean, more and more that's become a busier time, but like usually that's like a slower release period. So like that's when, you know, this year I got very into visual novels after playing Paranorma site. And it's, it's fun when there's like no, like we don't have any pressure to do a system episode. We have no pressure to like prep for Goaty. It really is just whatever we want. <laughs> and, uh, I, I do always feel bad when like there's a 50% chance in that time I'm just going to play Skyrim again. <laughs> you know, it's like this is like maybe like a waste of the listener's time if I go back to this at yeah. this point. But speaking of Skyrim, I really so this is not this is not just because Brendan is absent <laughs> and he has infamously talking ill of New Vegas. I do actually I do have like some things I've noticed while replaying that are kind of like in cautious defense of what Brendan has said about that game. But it's a game that you and I really love. You especially had like a very strong history with it. And I'm very excited to talk about it. So why don't we, why don't we just like get right into it? New Vegas in particular, and kind of parallel to our conversation about game preservation, I would argue it's a cult hit. I think like the, the initial reception of it versus how people talk about it now is very different. So I think maybe getting a little bit into that and also like why that was the case. And I do think that is also kind of parallel to Brendan's current feeling on it. I don't want to throw Brendan under the bus, obviously, <laughs> but like I do, I do understand why he has struggled to get into that game and why the initial reception, you know, additionally was kind of lukewarm. Um, but anyway, let's hear about your history with it with fallout i'm i'm so excited to talk about this game all right guys so uh <laughs> in my 10th grade biology class it was i believe 2008 i heard a kid talking about this new game where it's a post-apocalyptic wasteland and you can have a dog and that was that was literally enough for me to like ask for the game for christmas and all that and i got fallout 3 and to be clear i loved that game to death when I played it initially, I think I put like 200 to 400 hours into it or something. And I was a teenager. So that's like you, you had the time back then. And people still do that now. Somehow I still do that now. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, yeah, back in the day. And I'm like, I think I have 120 hours in Baldur's Gate 3 <laughs> right now. Uh, so whoops. Life finds a way. <laughs> Yeah, I loved the heck out of Fallout 3. I remember like it was so my first experience with like a, a difficult like single player game because I don't think I'd had that yet. And yeah, loved it. And I played it to a pulp like there was really nothing left to do. And I was really bummed about that. And then New Vegas came out a couple of years later. It was a pretty short amount of time because I think Fallout 3, if I remember correctly, was 2008. Yes, maybe 2007. And then New Vegas was 2010. It was a couple years after Fallout 3 and a year before Skyrim. So it is sort of this like, again, to quote Deep Space Nine, this like weird middle child between <laughs> like, because Fallout 3 was a huge deal. Like, I, I remember that moment. I think like Oblivion obviously was a big hit. Bethesda, I think at that time, were like entering their sort of golden age. They had done Morrowind. They had done Oblivion. The idea that Bethesda was going to bring back fallout and like make it sort of a in the style of an elder scrolls game i think people were so excited for that you know whether you were a longtime fan of one and two or completely new to the series and i would i would wager a lot of people started with three myself included that was also around i would credit bioshock too i know bioshock has pulled a lot of influence 
from Fallout 1 and 2. But I just think that was the era of like the post-apocalypse, the sort of like gray, you know, let's explore where society could end up era of like media in general, not even just games. But I think like Bioshock, you know, kind of pitch to people wouldn't it be cool to walk around the ruins while you listen to oldies <laughs> and the fall 30 was like do you want to do way more of that uh in an open world game and i just think like fallout 3 was was like the hit and in a lot of ways new vegas was kind of marketed a little weirdly it was sort of pitched almost like i remember seeing it announced and thinking it was sort of like one of the many expansions to oblivion I think it was sort of marketed as like, here's like sort of a sequel, sort of an expansion pack. It's in the same engine, but it's in a different place. And I just remember all the reviews at the time were like, it's pretty good, but it's really buggy and it's not as exciting as Fallout 3. And that was sort of like the conversation around it. And now I think if you were to walk into any conversation about video games and say, I like Fallout 3 more than New Vegas, you would get a wedge, like immediately. <laughs> it's true. And I would be giving it. Exactly. And I think everything is subjective. But I just think like if you if you talk to most Fallout fans, I think, you know, there's a reverence for one and two in New Vegas that is high above everything else, basically. To be clear, I've played uh three New Vegas and four. When I first played three, I, I loved the heck out of it, but I drained the world dry. When New Vegas was initially announced, I was really worried that it would be completely different, like that it would take to the style of the first two and become turn-based somehow, because um, the, <laughs> the first two are impenetrable, I will say. Uh, people widely regard one and two as some of the greatest games of all time, but I have tried playing Fallout 1 and I could not even get out of the cave you start in. I kept getting killed by rats. I have not tried to play them in a long time. I remember I, I had Fallout 2 on Steam, like in college. And I do want to try again one day, but I think that might, like, we just did a six-hour episode about the Dreamcast. Like, I have a pretty good tolerance for playing older games. Not even tolerance. I like checking out older games. But there is something about that early PC era <laughs> that is, like, very hard to get into and you yeah, almost the manuals or books yeah <laughs> exactly so fallout one and two might be those might be games i like watch playthroughs of which i don't normally do in place of playing something but i do i do want to like give those games a shot one day it, it does seem like though one of the reasons why new vegas is like the one for a lot of people is it has that style of writing and that attention to role playing but in the sort of more familiar package of three it is kind of the best of both worlds yeah. they also um took a lot they were supposed to be a fallout 3 originally back in the day when i think it was uh black isle was still making the fallout games and then their studio shut down but and i, and I think some of those people moved on to obsidian if i'm not mistaken uh, yeah and they took a lot of the like the content that was going to be in that fallout 3 and put it in new vegas so it was functionally i see a uh quote-unquote true sequel to fallout 2 I played a lot of fallout 4 like a, i think somewhere between 20 and 30 hours of it <clears> and i had a good time but and this is this is not a statement I can defend because it is just like my opinion, but it doesn't it didn't feel like Fallout to me. That's the thing. Like I, you know, I've I've spoken ill of Fallout 4, you know, and again, I don't want to like I I I I think I understand why Brendan has enjoyed that game more because I think Fallout 4 is designed in the way that a lot of modern Bethesda games are, where like 
that game is really fun if you just pick up a gun and explore. They have built that world to be like a little bit more visually pleasing. It plays like the the gunplay is significantly better. You can sprint for the first time. <laughs> and I think the way the way they like kind of continue to use vats like I, I think the actual like core gameplay of four is the best it's ever been and i don't think it's a bad game by any stretch but i agree with you i think the, the reason i'm like divided on that game is that i think it's a good game and i think it's a terrible fallout game like i think the things you come to fallout for are promised and then thrown into a trash can <laughs> the deep like that was it, it's one of the only games that i i've like enjoyed my time with but the more i played the sadder i felt about it it just, you know, it felt like all the stuff that you kind of expect from Fallout was very surface level. And I think that, you know, not to dunk on it too much, but I just think it was a very divided game. I think there were like, there were some faction quests that I think were really interesting. I do think like, I remember liking the Brotherhood of Steel quest in that game quite a bit. There were some companions like Nick Valentine that I think were like excellent, but you can even feel that disjointedness in the main quest. We're not to spoil too much, but like that game begins, you are like in the era right before the bombs drop and you like go into a vault as the bombs are dropping. You're frozen. Your son is taken from you. And then you wake up in Fallout 4. And that's a very effective opening, but it does, it, this is a common critique, it does create like an immediate disconnect where like, you know, I know Fallout 3 begins with you looking for your dad, but I think that works a little bit better than like your infant child is taken from you. And if you choose to not pursue that, it's like you're basically pretending that that whole opening didn't happen. And I remember there were multiple times, the, the moment that I really kind of, unplugged from four as like an enjoyer of rpgs was when i was having a conversation with um i think her name was piper in one of the opening towns and i couldn't progress the conversation until i chose a specific dialogue option that like totally went against the kind of character i was role playing and the game like really constantly did that it just like gave you the illusion of role-playing but all you could really do is say yes or no or ask for more money <laughs> and then i think like the actual things you could do within the game kind of boil down to like you know you could find like three or four groups of enemies and fight them so i just think like again it's not a bad game by any stretch and i think you know if you were to like i think that game works best when you play it like a skyrim um so if you're just someone who like wanted to like explore and kind of not really think about the role playing i do think then that's probably going to be your favorite one but i think if you are a fan of fallout in the sense that you want to see what's possible within like the role playing options and the dialogue then four is like noticeably weaker so that that's kind of how i feel about the game yeah. overall um and considering that you're speaking to someone who spent a lot of their high school time sitting and reading the entire fallout timeline on the former vault wiki i yeah i was not too enthused by fallout 4 weirdly though it was not as much the gameplay or the i wasn't a fan of the dialogue necessarily and i enjoyed playing the game but the thing that really took me out was a lot of the ways i used to play fallout 3 and 4 or 3 in new vegas were using like stealth like trying to sneak around and like sneak up yeah. on folks and half the enemies in fallout 4 just come out of the ground like they sneak up on you and it's <laughs> and that can be interesting to some but it feels like it kind of invalidates the way that i would prefer to play the game that's that's the key phrase like fallout 4 doesn't care how you want to play it 
it's going to make it like a very straightforward looter shooter, no matter what you like wanted to do. Um, and I think the opposite is true of New Vegas. To be fair, though, so like revisiting, like I played a lot of New Vegas in college. and I remember liking it a lot. I think um, something that I think New Vegas does like that I, I remember in my like initial playthrough of it that I like immediately preferred was how it handles the morality system. Because Fallout 3 handles morality in very much a 2008 way where, you know, that was like the year where moral choice in games was becoming like a triple A pitch. <laughs> we got games like Infamous where, you know, I like that game, but that game is very much like I could save everyone or I could burn down this house. And it's like... <laughs> Playing as good or evil is kind of more of an empty, like you can do either, but like, what is it saying narratively by doing one or the other? And Fallout 3, I, I do think like, I think it was a pretty shocking reveal when, you know, one of the first big evil things you could do with that game is blow up Megaton, which is like the starting town that's built around this currently deactivated atomic bomb, which is like kind of funny that they chose to build a town there but you know <laughs> megaton i think is actually one of the cooler like settings in three it, de it definitely has a lot of personality and a lot of characters and i think the fact that the game like gave you an option to just like do something so heinous and profit from it i think was like very impressive at the time but i i just think like it does also speak to sort of like the cartoon black and white of of fallout 3 story where being evil kind of feels like choosing to emotionally disconnect from the game uh whereas in new vegas uh, it also was always funny to me that you could blow up megaton and then give a guy water three times and be considered <laughs> good because it was just like a numeric system um but uh new vegas i think still has the kind of silly karma system but on top of that you also have reputation with every faction in town so like you could be revered in Good, Good Springs is the name of the starting town, yes. right? Yes. Uh, you could be like well, well liked in Good Spring, but be considered evil karmically. As long as you don't like mess things up in that town, they'll be like, oh yeah, that person was pretty cool. I don't see why everyone else thinks they're evil, <laughs> even though they may like 10 minutes later join Caesar's Legion. But I also think like the depiction of the factions is where I think the nuance of New Vegas's writing stands head and shoulders above three. I think three was very controversial in the way it depicted the Brotherhood of Steel as like the unquestioned good guys. And I think New Vegas does a lot to, you know, for those who don't know, the main, without spoiling, the main three factions, I get there are, there are many factions in New Vegas, but like the main plot revolves around kind of taking back Hoover Dam. Uh, and the three parties that are trying to do so are the NCR, the New California Republic, which are sort of the de facto good guys. But the game does a lot to be like, some of the first characters you meet are like complaining about the NCR. And I think like they are just the de facto okay choice. The more you kind of learn about how that faction is run. They're Caesar's Legion, which is like unquestionably bad. <laughs> um, but I think even though they're the bad guys, the game doesn't condone them, but you learn the leader's worldview and it's disturbing and it's sickening and it's not able to be understood by a tragic backstory but you're like of course this faction is led by like this misguided dad who you know got really into roman history one day <laughs> and is now like 
failing upwards as the new, you know, Caesar or Kaisar of this empire. The fact that they pronounce Caesar wrong tells you everything, you know? And then you have Mr. House, who is like what every moderate reply guy thinks they are, I think, in their head. Uh, (laughs) Mr. House is this, you know, person who foresaw the overwhelming likelihood of nuclear apocalypse and protected the Vegas Strip and is sort of like the neutral party. And I... I find Mr. House to be one of the more fascinating characters in the game. In addition to that, there's an option of just ignoring, like not joining up with any of them uh, and, you know, going your own way. And I think the fact that people still argue, I I don't think anyone uh, worth listening to is advocating for Caesar's Legion (laughs) other than for an evil playthrough. But the fact that people argue about like, what is the best choice still 10 years later, I think shows a lot of nuance to the writing. And I think, One of the reasons why this game has over time built its reputation to be like the ideal Fallout experience. And three, while initially received as like a big deal, I think people still like, but it it doesn't have that staying power. I'm not thinking about blowing up Megaton nearly as much as like listening to Caesar and being like, how did this person become this way? You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I... (laughs) I'm sorry, I, I, just, I, I rambled on for a no, long, long no, time there. No, yeah. it's I, I welcome it. I, okay, good. I'm basically I'm feeding you. Basically, I feel try, like uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm being yeah. nourished by this conversation. Yeah, and I'm also <laughs> trying to stop myself from saying, "Hey, everyone, turn off this podcast and go watch H Bomber Guy's video essay on Fallout New Vegas." Because- I will say his like Fallout um, videos in general. I mean, they have kind of uh, hyperbolic titles. Like it's, um, there's one, the Fallout 3 one is like Fallout 3 is like trash. Here's why. <laughs> here's why. But his actual exploration of them is is way more nuanced. And I think uh, his reverence for the series is like, you know, and also for, he's got a great one about Deus Ex as well, which I think is actually a pretty good like comparison series to new, like Deus Ex, the first one and New Vegas, I think share a lot in terms of like the sort of immersive sim approach at role playing. Absolutely. I, I don't think I've watched his Deus Ex video yet, but they're all like really well-researched and good. Yeah. So I've, as you know, I've been playing. I actually started my playthrough of New Vegas before you invited me to come onto this episode. Like I got the Xbox, I downloaded New Vegas, I started playing it. And I believe the next day I received a message from you on Discord like, hey, you want to fill in for Brendan? And I was like, who boy? <laughs> <laughs> because like tensions have been bubbling up in the <laughs> the community about... Brendan's fallout takes and um, it did a little bit feel like I was coming on to to cool the waters a little bit. To- and look, I, I just want to make it abundantly clear. I like fully respect Brendan's read on it. And this is not like, again, I think like um, what I said before about four being like kind of a more welcoming game overall. And I will say replay New Vegas. You know, I had these memories of like the role playing and the the side quests where I like approach them in in a you know myriad of different ways but the way the game opens once you're out of good springs it is not the the world map is not designed to really be like enjoyably explored one of the first <laughs> places you go is a town called prim that is just full of 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 bandits basically and then you go inside the hotel and like 
eight NPCs are just walking around in the dark with guns. <laughs> and like, I totally like if I didn't have the confidence of the game in my head, if I didn't already have like have that experience of what happens next within me, I would feel the same exact way as Brendan, where I'd be like, I don't know what, like, why am I playing this? Because <laughs> I'm not enjoying the environment. It's like overtly grim. I have no way. Like, I understand that I can role play, but like, I do think uh, similar, weirdly enough, to Brendan's advice with Starfield. I do think if you're playing New Vegas for the first time, I would advise sticking to the main quest until you hit New Vegas. And I think at that point, you'll have a better idea of like who your character is, how the game plays and what you what you want to do, because I, I think Fallout in general, it's not like Skyrim and El in Oblivion and, you know, Morrowind to a lesser extent, like you can just kind of explore and make your way in the world. You, you might be a little bit ill prepared, but you can especially in Skyrim, you can really just go into a cave, find better equipment and like be pretty set um a fallout you really can't like you really do have to have at least 200 bullets for a gun yeah. before you can confidently roam the wilderness so that's i think fallout new vegas does get that classic jrpg treatment of yeah you need to play like the first five to ten hours before it gets good absolutely like, and i think that's also that's a i think that's partially why it was received the way it was at launch and has become more you know loved over time because it's sort of that slow burn of the pacing of the game but i so i understand like how dreary the opening seems but on this playthrough i for the first time really noticed how that main quest line like taking you through prim and novak and nipton and all those towns is like introducing you to all the factions and or all the main factions and how they yeah. operate like you you help out good springs and you see oh some things will make you more popular with one faction and less popular with another immediately i do think the way like if you are someone who talks to the npcs in good springs that initial quest of like siding with them or is it the powder gangers the powder gangers yeah that is a great like little tutorial of how role-playing works in new vegas yeah i think like it is weird they just then kick you to prim like right after <laughs> Uh, but I do think the Good Springs is like a great intro to like the strengths of the game. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. So to that end, I thought it was interesting how I always do the help Good Springs out, beat the Powder Gangers, etc. But it only really occurred to me this playthrough that the Powder Gangers are a faction that was basically subject to prison slave labor by the NCR and escaped. And it's interesting how as this game ages, I... And of course, these guys all talk, they all swear, they're all like mean and like angry and violent. And of course, because that's that was the conception of prisoners back in the day. But really thinking about it this time, like has helped me see that like even this fact, even the powder gangers, this like violent, angry faction who want to destroy a good town have maybe reasons to be as upset as they are and as violent as they are. Exactly. And, and that goes to what I was saying about Caesar's Legion, where it's like, it's not condoning them. It's not like, you know, I can fix them. It's just like... <laughs> there's a reason to be evil exactly you know? uh uh and in the in the case of the powder gangers it's sort of like revenge in the case of caesar's legion it's like just pure corruption and like you know it's a despot giving people an excuse to act on their worst impulses you know when you go into that town and they've burned it down and crucified <laughs> everyone there you're like oh my that is one of the still like most disturbing introductions of of a villain in a game 
you know, and it's yeah. kind of cut by the fact that they're just like cosplaying as, you know, Roman legionaries. <laughs> like, and that's the thing about New Vegas. I think the sense of humor, despite how dark it is and how grim it is, once you meet more factions, it is a pretty goofy game. Like, I think that's Fallout is known for its very dark sense of humor. I don't think you get that in three nearly as much. The closest you get is that guy who turned into a tree, uh, which is one <laughs> of my favorite quests in three. Yeah. Fun fact, and, recurring character in the Fallout series up until oh, really? 3. Yeah, he was in 1 and 2. That's awesome. Uh, Bob, right? Or Harold? Uh, Harold. I think it's, he has yes. two names, yeah. Well, Bob is the tree on his head. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and that's like the Oasis is such a cool setting in that game because you're like, oh, like it feels like you're in oblivion all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, and, but you're playing Fallout 3. Yeah. There are colors. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, oh, shit, there are colors. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like with New Vegas, like once you get to the Vegas Strip and you meet the gang called the Kings that are all Elvis impersonators, like that's the kind of stuff I love where it's like they really do make a mythology out of what remains. You know, I think it, it is mostly, you know, kind of Mad Max Raiders. But I think when you meet those factions that have way more personality, that's where I think the game like really takes off and comes to life. Absolutely. So I will say to the credit of the like opening few towns, the way that you are introduced to each faction as it progresses really tells you the wider story entire. Like when you you alluded to Nipton earlier about how like brutal Caesar's Legion is, like that walking into that town, seeing a lottery happening for people to keep their lives and then seeing people crucified, that, you're like Yeah, the guy the guy running away being like, I won the lottery, is that exciting? And then you yeah. like see like oh that just means he was like the one survivor you know <laughs> and it's interesting because those are powder gangers the gang you just helped to defeat in the right. other town so like yeah. it makes you oh there are people worse than those guys like it gives you yes. perspective you see in prim the the second town you hit after good springs how spread thin the ncr is that they can't even yeah. handle a, like a few bandits in a town because of how like poorly they're supplied how like they're spread all over the mojave trying to like cut back caesar's legion and in i think my favorite experience so far has been getting to novak which is just a town like there's no like ncr or caesar like allegiance to it it's just a place where like little stories are happening the characters are interacting with each is other is that with the dinosaur like yes, the theme park. it is yeah. a, a town called Novak, which is named so because the lights on no vacancy are only showing Novak. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's awesome. And it has a big dinosaur named Dinky the T-Rex in the middle of it with a sniper in its mouth. And like the, the small towns are so creative in this game. And there are so many stories happening in that town. I think it's pretty clear the game is saying like the good guys are these little towns not NCR, you know, like the, the, the good guys are the people that are just trying to live their lives in peace. And how do you best provide a world for them yeah. if you are playing a good character? This is like, I think this does come down a little bit to personal taste, but I have found that when you, all right, so um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about how the game ends and how that affects certain people. So if you yeah. uh, have not played this game and want to go in completely unsullied, which I do recommend uh, skip ahead a little bit. But I I have always found that the Yes Man ending, which is the... That's the independent. Like the wild card yeah. quest, the independent Vegas ending, ends up being the best for the most people. Because when you give you hand the land over to Caesar's Legion, every, functionally almost everyone dies, except for a few people that Caesar kind of likes. If you hand over everything to the NCR 
a bunch of like conflicts bubble up. They can't they the game is trying to tell you that the NCR, while they may be a force of quote unquote good, they do not have the capacity to help everyone. Like they're spread so thin by trying to maintain their like hold and their power that they can't help any of their citizens. And it's also made clear that they they almost sort of erase individuality to an extent yeah. where like I think it's easy Pete and Good Springs who's like NCR are like noble enough but they want you to be NCR like if they came to Good Springs it wouldn't be Good Springs anymore it would be like NCR settlement number you know whatever exactly and if you help enough people if you go around and make sure that everyone has what they need as best as you can and then do the independent ending which is where the battle of Hoover Dam happens it's what the game culminates to and one side emerges victorious and then uh, House or Yes Man come out and then do the takeover. The whole game, Mr. House is basically trying to tell you why all his calculations and machinations are going to end up with everyone being the happiest, which is what every tech bro thinks, that they, <laughs> they know exactly how to save the world. And if you do exactly as they say and heed all their vast power and money, everything will work out fine. It, but is, it-, it is so disturbing how you can map the three factions to our current political state. And that's a sign of good satire, right? Yeah. Where it's like voting for Biden sure felt like joining the NCR. You know, where it's <laughs> like, I guess, you know, like what are my, I'm not going to vote for Caesar. It's either you know? the crucifying fascist <laughs> yeah, despots right. who cosplay as weirdos or <laughs> an old guy. like that. Yeah, or, or an old guy that like says, you know, yeah. like everyone should get paid better. It's like, okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> or a techno fascist. But if you follow Mrs. House's tea and then see his ending, it, ends up with all these conflicts bubbling up and being snuffed out by Mr. House because they go against his perfect machination. But I have always found that the best ending is teaching everyone how to help themselves and help each other and then doing independent Vegas and letting them live freely. Right. It's kind of saying, I mean, I think that level of power, you know, it, it is weirdly, you know, it could be read as like kind of a libertarian ending, but I think it's more about individualism and about sort of like being part of a society where you're not answering to one ruling party again that's and that's just one read on the game you know that's i think the strength of new vegas and the reason why it's still discussed is because there is so much nuance you know other than you know a few of the factions like (laughs) the the world is so screwed in that game there is maybe a bigger argument for some of the like well NCR might be the only decent option left or Mr. House might be right, you know, but I I agree. I do think the game is like pretty not so subtly saying like the yes man ending is sort of like the canon almost like, yeah, exactly. Because again, I think it's purposeful that NCR before you are even given a chance to join, you hear them bad mouthed by like good people like constantly, even Novak. There are a lot of like X ncr people there who like you know kind of cosplay as rangers but uh they they have complicated feelings towards that faction as well it's interesting you know i can't tell if it's like because i have a prior knowledge of the factions but i i find like to kind of compare this game to starfield which i do think like um i i have not played much more of starfield since brendan and i last talked about it i definitely think starfield is like a big step up from fallout 4 uh, in the ways we're discussing, like I do think there are more role playing options. Um, I have yet to see how much that like fully pays off, and I don't know the heart of the narrative quite as well as people who have played more of it, like Brendan. So I, I don't want to like make too many ultimatums, but I do think like the way Starfield introduces the factions 
it just kind of goes over my head where they like they list all these names like the Freestar Collective and all this. And it kind of feels more like like I don't I don't get that sense of nuance where it's like there's the faction of like cowboys to join to like fight the pirates. The closest I think Starfield probably gets to New Vegas is I know there is a quest where when you get arrested, you can work undercover as like a member of the pirates. And I do think it is like largely up to you who you end up siding with. So I think like I'm really, really excited to experience that quest line. But I do think it's interesting how Starfield comes out and like the game that I'm most apt to want from it is New Vegas. You know, I, I think in a way, I mean, there's that um, I think it's a hard drive article where it's like Todd Howard, like texts Obsidian, like what they're up to like late at <laughs> night. Um, but I do think like in a lot of ways, you know, the two platonic ideals of a Bethesda game are like, are you going to go the Skyrim approach where it's like a little bit more about exploration and about sort of like learning as you go and just sort of like being given the freedom to play as any character you want with maybe not a lot of acknowledgement of it? Or are you going to take the New Vegas approach where it's like it is not really built to be that flexible in terms of exploration, but everything you do is acknowledged and the possibilities are endless in terms of like how you approach certain quests. Like there's always the option just to throw a grenade into the room, <laughs> you know? And that's Absolutely. a very Deus Ex approach where it's like, you can kind of approach the story from any angle you want and there will be like a, it, the game will recognize that. And that's, I think, one of the biggest weaknesses of a lot of Bethesda games is that lack of recognition. And that's really at the forefront of my brain right now playing so much Baldur's Gate 3 where like, even more than New Vegas, I would argue Baldur's Gate 3 is like, everything you do in Baldur's Gate 3 is filtered through a role-playing game where you choose to explore what you do when you walk into a room, even how you choose to begin a battle, how you battle, how you talk to people. The game is like through every action offered to you. The game is asking you in a way like, who is this character? Who is this person? I think New Vegas doesn't ask you that right away. It kind of does with Good Springs and then it waits a little bit too long. But I think the moments where it does, that's why I think people have the reverence for it and why I think about it when I'm playing Starfields, <laughs> uh, the new Bethesda game. <laughs> The interesting thing about the start of the game that like we were talking about how like sometimes it can feel a little slow, like when you're going through Prim and yeah. Nipton and Novak. Um, I have a lot to say about Novak specifically, but I, I really do appreciate that the game doesn't stop you from going yeah. straight to New Vegas. It's, it just puts a lot of really powerful enemies there. Yes. So like you can, if you wanted to, if you were brave, uh, I have done this a few times myself. Um, you can just set your agility to nine or ten at the start of the game because uh, the game operates with a special system. And do we, should we get into what the special system is? Does everyone know? I love the way the stats work in this game. We can get into it yeah. if you want. So uh, special stands for strength, perception, endurance, charisma, intelligence, agility, and luck. Uh, it's kind of sad that I know that like without stopping off the top of my head. I know how to breed a golden shakaba from memory. You're doing great. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and my current build, I'll say for the listener, is um, I set my intelligence really high so that I can distribute skill points, more skill points with every level up. So I'm basically going to be able to get every skill to 100 by the time I'm done with the game, which is my goal. But if you start the game and set your agility to nine, you can sprint past all of those really strong enemies <laughs> and just go straight to New Vegas, ignoring the critical path. 
like ignoring all the faction quests, ignoring all the little story beats. You can just sprint right to New Vegas if you wanted to. The game strongly encourages you not to do that by putting Cazadors and giant rad death scorpions claws. and death claws yeah. in that path. And there's even one guy who's like, you really don't want to go that way. But you, <laughs> but I do appreciate that you still can. Exactly. And I think that's a sign of a good role playing game where like similarly, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 will 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 have sort of soft locks in that way where I mean, there are some points of the game where they're like, hey, if you keep going, you're like really under leveled for this. Like maybe don't yet. That's pretty rare, though. Like usually the game lets you kind of you know, you can try it. You can see how wrong it will go. And I think that's the big thing with New Vegas, especially. You have to be very comfortable with things going really badly. Uh, I mean, I I have, I forgot how much PTSD I have for the like explosive noise, like the sound they play like a millisecond before you realize you stepped on a mine. And it's like, and then all of a sudden like- All your limbs pop up broken. All my limbs, yeah. So like- I, I understand why it's hard to get into for some people because I think you have to really know what's on the other side. And I don't think the world map is designed in the same, like with Skyrim and even uh, Fallout 4 uh, and, you know, Baldur's Gate 3, I know is a kind of different, but like I'm including it as, as I talk about this. All those games, like as you're wandering around, there will be very clear visual points of interest where like, in Skyrim especially, you know, you'll be walking around and be like, oh, wait a minute, I see like a town in the distance or I see this. And like Vault 3, I think actually did a slightly better job at this than New Vegas where like you walk out of the vault and you're probably going to end up in Megaton first, you know, because that's like going to catch your eye. But you can go anywhere. But then it's stuff like Ten Penny Towers. Like they, they do kind of more visually signpost things. New Vegas like really doesn't. <laughs> it really is just like you're in the Wild West <laughs> Until you're like very close to something. Yeah. And other than maybe the Vegas strip, which you can, you know, that obviously stands out. Yeah. But I, I did always find it interesting that they so there is Dinky the dinosaur in Novak. You can see that from surprisingly pretty far away. Yeah. And there's also like I do like the way that the Lucky 38, which is the tower in the center of New Vegas, like looms over basically your whole playthrough. Like um, not I don't I don't mean to like completely discredit what you no, said. No, no, no. I mean it's I good to agree. point out the examples. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. There are actually pretty few landmarks in the game, but there the one is the Lucky 38, which is like your your goal for the whole game, which I do find an interesting choice. And I think that's purposeful because it, it's showing you like how little remains outside of the Vegas strip. Yeah. And how fitting that the one thing that remains is a casino. You know, <laughs> like the promise of wealth where the odds are stacked against you yeah and it's led by a techno bro like <laughs> it's, Mr. Ugh, it's led by fuck ugh, i don't even want to yeah. say any i don't want to say any names uh and crash yeah, my sure. computer again but, <laughs> yeah i this quickly did not become a microsoft ad we uh we avoided that fate <laughs> the, yeah there were a few other things i wanted to touch on uh briefly like this is i think my i don't know 10th playthrough of this game or something but i hadn't played it in about five years or so the last time I tried to play this game, I got very into the very strong and continuing modding community. This game has pr probably one of the more recognizable modding communities. And I think, I think that's worth pointing out as to why it has, like, I think that like Skyrim 2 is a great example of a game that like pretty much every Bethesda game has a very dedicated modding scene. Yeah. That has in a lot of ways kept those games alive. I played vanilla Skyrim for years up until recently. And now I can't imagine not 
modding it a little bit every time I go back to it. I will say um, modding it was fun when I did it initially on my old PC, but I thought about playing the game again before I got this Xbox and it took me no joke two days to figure out how to like get all the mods installed and how to get every package working and interacting with each other before I could actually turn on the game. And the thought of going through that gave me such a headache that I just, I'm, I'm playing vanilla again. And yeah, I will I'm say- I'm also playing vanilla for New Vegas right now. Vanilla runs better than I remember, I think because of the Xbox Series S. The loading times were always really tedious in the playing Fallout New Vegas on the 360 and on PC. And like you said, they're, they evaporate. They're, they're pretty much gone. Like yeah. you have enough time to maybe read one blurb and then you're out. Um, I've experienced a few crashes. Like I would exit a place and the game wouldn't load up again and I'd have to restart the game. That, that was kind of annoying. There's still the, the charming Bethesda stuff. I know it's Obsidian, but you know, Bethesda, I think they published it still. Yeah, they From did. what I know of the development, they kind of let like Obsidian do their own thing. I think there was someone like overseeing it, but like this by all means is Obsidian's game within the framework that Bethesda provided with the Fallout 3 engine. Exactly. Yeah. So I also wanted to touch on what is standing out to me the most in this playthrough. I haven't gotten super far. I think I've made it to the strip. I got my revenge against Benny, the guy who shoots you in the head at the start of the game, voiced by Matthew Perry from Friends. Who got the job because he said on some talk show that he played so much Fallout 3, he had to go to a hand doctor. <laughs> uh, and someone heard that and was like, you want to be in this? Um, <laughs> Such a, but, it was a strange casting. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's bizarre. He also like I feel like he sounds kind of bored in the performance. Like I don't think it's like a great celebrity casting yeah, it's, it's, to be honest. It's all right. It's all right. It's not like he calls you toots like, and sweet cheeks and all that stuff. Yeah. Go ahead and laugh, baby. I ain't blind to the humor in this situation. He does the character well, but I think I think about like examples of sort of like celebrities outside of you know video game voice actors that have like entered the game space and like. <laughs> It starts and ends with Martin Sheen in Mass Effect. I cannot wait for you to meet Martin Sheen in Mass Effect. Uh, he is unbelievable. I remember I was I was playing Mass Effect 2 like when it came out at, at my uh, mom's place and she walked down and was like, that sounds like Martin Sheen. And I was like, it is Martin Sheen. <laughs> Games are mainstream now, mom. You just like turn around, spit flies into your mom's face. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah I, I just said nothing. I just pure... <laughs> It's like a feral ghoul. It's so funny yeah. coming from Liam Neeson being your dad in Fallout 3 to Matthew Perry being the big celebrity. <laughs> I feel like it, it, it is like I think Bethesda was like, we're going to get like one of the biggest actors for 20 minutes in all our games. <laughs> you know, like they got Sir Patrick Stewart uh, for the opening of Oblivion. I can't believe for all the Shrek cameos in Mass Effect, like. Pretty much like a, a lot of the cast of various Star Trek shows play some kind of role in the Mass Effect trilogy, but they didn't get Patrick Stewart. <laughs> makes no sense. Oblivion got Patrick Stewart. I'm like, come on. Uh, so <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 you're unleashing a lot. This is a very I'm, I'm, open episode. This is the power of New Vegas. Yeah, I yeah. got my revenge against Benny. I have been doing a few quests here and there. And one thing that I noticed in Novak and in other towns is even though there are these like huge warring factions, like this house and this whole strip and the Securitron robots and Caesar's Legion and NCR, uh, this game pays so much attention to like the little struggles and little stories happening. Like there's, this is a a somewhat major spoiler for a companion's quest. I believe one of the, at least in, in my experience in reading, most beloved companions and one of my favorites, Boone, 
is someone you meet in Novak. He is a sniper positioned in the mouth of a T-Rex named Dinky, which seems really silly. And you walk up and talk to him and he's like super cold and serious. And it turns out that someone in the town sold his pregnant wife into slavery. Oh my God. Yeah. Have you ever done this quest? No, I, I, I will say I love a lot of the companions. I thought the one you were going to bring up is the Nightkin companion. Oh yeah, Lily? Um, she's great. I love Lily. I will say this about Fallout 4. I did like a lot of the companions. I think that was actually one of the stronger parts of that game. Like Nick Valentine and, and others getting to know. Like It felt like the part of the team for Fallout 4 that wanted to make a Mass Effect game <laughs> did the best with their assignment, you know? That's so cool. Um, have you met Veronica? Veronica? I don't know if I did. I don't remember her. You, so if you get any further in this game, if you have like the time someday, I'd try and seek out Veronica because I think you'd love her. She's also a beloved companion. Yeah, I know there's, I know, uh, I, I remember uh, Lily and Arcade uh, was another great yeah, companion. Arcade's also, uh, uh, yeah. they, they're all my favorite. I love all of my children equally, but um, <laughs> like, uh, oh, sorry, I forgot. We were talking about celebrity cameos. Uh, Danny Trejo plays a companion named Raul Tejada in this game. Really? Yeah. Danny Trejo's in this game. He's there again. They're all my favorites, but like Raul, I have a soft spot for. Just putting this out there, boss. If these super mutants kidnap us and force us to fix toasters for them, it's on you. But yeah, I was playing through Boone's quest and he basically asked you to help him figure out who sold his wife into slavery. And uh, spoiler again, Steven, do you mind knowing who it is? No, I I, I, I might have played through this like in college. I don't I don't mind you spoiling this, okay. though. So it turns out that when you walk into Novak and you walk into the hotel, you're greeted by this really nice lady who like runs the hotel and she like talks about how Boone's wife went missing and she like perfectly says like, oh, what a poor dear. She probably ran off without him. Like and you believe her like the first time you play it, you like believe her. And it turns out she was the one who sold. Oh, her. my God. And she's in like. Just knowing how evil innocuous people are capable of being, knowing how like the like the town of Novak is really full of broken people who are like past their prime. Like yeah. there's an NCR ranger who like broke his leg and arm and like can't serve anymore. There's an old singer who had to like escape from another town because he was being hunted. At the same time, though, like that ranger, I, I got a dialogue option because I'm very speech centric in my playthrough. And like one of my dialogue options was saying like, you know, you are not like past your prime, like you still have your mind, like, you know, don't feel like you can't still make a difference. And then he taught me a move. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, that's like a tiny little thing. I got something I'll probably never use because I have a gun. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, do like a stealthy take. To, uh, I guess if I'm sneaking around, but like <laughs> the game giving you that option, you know, and then rewarding you for your curiosity is I think microcosmic of just what New Vegas is good at. Yeah. And what a lot of Fallout games are good at. I actually used that move that he teaches you on a Cazador. Cazadors oh, really? <laughs> are, uh, for those who don't know, are evolved, like mutated versions of uh, the Tarantula Hawk, which, fun fact, has the second most painful insect sting in the world. Uh, it's a real bug. I have a tattoo of it. Oh, wow. I love that thing. And it's terrifying. Um, it's one of the creatures that like line the way to New Vegas if you want to go straight there. From <laughs> yeah. And they have a perception of 10 and they can spot you from a mile away and fly at you with their agility of eight or whatever. It's 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 brutal. But I learned the Ranger takedown. It was fun. Can I just say, I don't know if I said this already. I love vets so much. 
And I think Brendan said <laughs> this uh, when he was on DLC, but I wish Starfield had vats. Like I just, it feels like I have this muscle memory to like pause time and aim five times at a dude's head yeah. and see it explode. And like Starfield, the gunplay is much better. Like it's probably the best like feeling shooter Bethesda has made, but I still think there's something so cathartic about vats. Uh, I agree. And, yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't like it, but the thing about Vats is you don't have to use it. It's just an That's option. True. Like it's if you want like a more inviting experience and you're not like yeah. a perfect first person shooter player. I think it's it's definitely like because New Vegas has sort of a more Windian approach at combat <laughs> where it's like like in Skyrim and Oblivion, Skyrim especially. Skyrim, you can technically use anything, even if you're not like highly skilled in a sword you know like this if you put perks into swords your sword is going to do more damage than like if you never put a perk into bow and arrow and you use a bow and arrow but you can you everything will work the thing you really need to know before (laughs) playing new vegas or morrowind is like if you're not at least at like a 40 with something it's going to be bad you're going to (laughs) miss even if you're aiming right at something like i remember one of the most uh like informative moments like when I first played Morrowind in college and to be clear I haven't played a ton of Morrowind it's like one of my biggest you know goals in doing this show I was like trying to hit a rat with a short sword and it was doing no damage and I was like (laughs) what is happening and then I looked it up and my skill in short sword was 30 which means that I basically have like a 30% chance to hit that's terrible Not just like you'll do less damage. Like you can't even wield this thing well enough to hit a rat. <laughs> I remember Googling, is Morrowind unplayable? Like after doing that. And then they're like, <laughs> no, you just have to actually use the things you're skilled in. It's literally a skill issue. Yeah. <laughs> the the biggest, I think there are like distinct eras of Bethesda games. And I think like Morrowind and I would to a lesser degree, but I would include them in this Fallout 3 and New Vegas and Oblivion are games where you make your character and you kind of have to play them that way. Like you can get better at things, but it's going to take a long time. You do have to like kind of choose like what are the things you're going to focus on? Whereas in Skyrim and I don't fully know if Starfield is this way yet, but like I would guess it's closer to Skyrim. You can just kind of figure it out as you go. Um, And I do think that that design, like they both have their merits. I do think like, oddly enough, there are a lot of mods for Skyrim that like kind of make it more like a Morrowind or New Vegas experience where you're like, you know, some people like that distinction where it's like, I really want to feel like I've built my character from the beginning and then I can play that way versus kind of figuring it out, but maybe feeling a little bit less distinct. But yeah, I think I think that's something to know when going into New Vegas. If you don't want to get your cheeks clapped by a giant rad scorpion right out of the first town. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, um, one was chase. I wasn't even trying to go that way. And a giant rad scorpion was chasing me. And I had to like and I had to sprint away from it while I kept getting distracted by coyotes or else I would die. I also like vats for just being like, who is chasing me? Like, you know, you'll just see an enemy <laughs> on your radar and it's like. Who is this? And then, and then you like of... scroll it. It's a death claw. And you're like, oh, I got to get out of here. <laughs> I opened the door of a house in New Vegas and like it took a second to load in. But immediately in front of me, like comic looking up in disbelief was a death claw. But they were <laughs> blind. They were a blind death claw. Oh, my God. So I, I, I took the hint and just 
immediately snuck and didn't move. And it was like some of the tensest <laughs> stealth moments I've had in recent memory. So lovely that game. So it's it's good. It's good, gang. You should play it. There's a there's a quest right out of Novak after all the seriousness of dealing with Boone and everything, where you go to a facility and you help a bunch of ghouls get into a rocket and fly away. That's the quest I'm doing currently, and that's one of the ones I remembered fondly. Yeah. It's, was it's, sending the ghouls to space. It's like it's like the only like good cults in a video game I've ever seen. You know, like yeah, they're just trying to escape like human hostility, and that's that's valid. It, uh, I felt so bad because uh, you know to get in that building you have to kill like eight feral ghouls, <laughs> and then you meet uh, is it Jason Bright? Yes, is Jason name? Bright, who's like a glowing ghoul, and he's like, oh, like just know that every feral ghoul you kill, like they could have been cleansed by the great beyond. Uh, we're just all, we're all going to space to escape. Honestly, of all the like political stances in the wasteland, I think trying to go to space is like one of the better ones. Like, just get out of here. <laughs> have you? That's see valid. what lives in this place yeah yeah the great beyond i think the ghouls too in general are, are one of the more interesting like beings in the fallout lore because they're essentially like it's kind of fun how you can sort of see the parallels between some fantasy tropes and fallout like mutants are kind of like orcs you know and uh ghouls are sort of like the undead but the ghouls are immortal they live forever and some of them have lost their minds and are feral ghouls and will attack you on sight. But a lot of them are like fully sentient and, you know, some of them even have lived for so long. They have like assumed multiple identities over time, Yeah, which is like very similar to a game Brennan has brought up a lot, Lost Odyssey, which is a game all about immortality. So I think like just having kind of that spectrum of like there are ghouls that are just zombies and there are ghouls that are like on their fifth personality run uh is so cool to me yeah like the idea of people who were alive when the bombs dropped is always like wild like whether it be a ghoul or mr house himself like it's always like really wild to hear like it's the game has for a game that takes place in like a quote-unquote real world like not a fantasy world the the lore is so deep and profound and interesting and almost like magic realist the way people describe what happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like radiation is sort of the magic word where it's like, oh, radiation did this, you know? And I think, I mean, again, there's a lot of, um, there's a full spectrum of how certain beings are depicted. Like, I think uh, Marcus is a standout character in Fallout 2 and in New Vegas, who is like this mutant that's trying to do good and to like, but he still kind of believes like, I think the, the plot of Fallout 1 from what I know is largely about this like person that has melded with the supercomputer that believes that like everyone should be a mutant. That's like the best future for, for humankind. Yeah. And what's interesting is like Marcus still like kind of believes that he's like, you would have been a good mutant, but you know, whatever. I'm not going to force you to like, uh, don't look up pictures of the master from fallout one, by the way, it's really unsettling. <laughs> I've, I've seen like also the way they talk is like a bunch of different recordings of, you know, like uh, different voices. Yeah. It's really wild. It's truly wild. But I think like Marcus also voiced by Michael Dorn, who plays Worf, uh, Star Trek. <laughs> He's incredible. Uh, <laughs> this but, game um, was made for you, Steven. It was, it was, I, I, I think, um, to kind of maybe wrap a bow around this conversation, I, I definitely would be interested in like, you know, and, and dear listener, if you want this, please let us know. Like, I would love to talk like I would like to dedicate more time to this game and maybe have like a more 
uh, in-depth discussion about the plot. So now we're kind of like giving kind of a bird's eye view and also talking about how it feels to return to it. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, even though it has become this gold standard, it does show its age in a lot of ways. It, it's not a perfect game by any stretch. In fact, I think it's fairly hard to get into. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. And I think like if you're someone that has failed to connect to it, despite the praise that surrounds it, that's totally valid. Not everything's going to work for everybody. I think my advice for getting into New Vegas is if you enjoy the feeling of the Good Springs plot if you enjoy choosing a side there and enjoy anything about the game on top of that just keep going like just commit to the main quest and then you're gonna be really overjoyed with the options that present themselves to you i think really where it clicks is once you're like introduced to every faction and then discover the yes man route and then you're kind of given that big choice of like who are you joining you know and and what story do you want to see and then you realize that there's a beyond the critical path that you were put on. There's like a whole world beyond that. Mm -hmm. And also some really good DLC that um, I've maybe, never played the DLC. That's like a whole other. Like, <laughs> I, I do not, I, I not want to like get into it because that is a whole other conversation. But um, yeah. yeah, I agree with everything Steven said. I totally respect Brendan not vibing with this game. Me too. I, I want to make that abundantly clear. And I, I also don't want to I don't want this to be like pressure to Brendan to play. <laughs> there I mean, again, like there are games with similar reverence that I have have not connected to in the same way. Same. Disco Elysium is the other big one for me that like I definitely want to give more time. But I I just don't like I love the writing and I love the sort of atmosphere and what it's doing and exploring, but I don't love the act of playing it. And sometimes that's like it sounds simple, but like that can be enough to like dissuade you from wanting to give it more time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of where Brendan is coming from with New Vegas. And I get that. It's not really for the bulk of the game. It's not very enjoyable or pleasant to experience. Uh, I think until you have more options and more of a sense of the world it does feel like ju you're you're just getting the wasteland but i also think part of that is intentional i think part of that is setting up like this battle for the hoover dam and like what remains feels so much bigger because of the lack of it elsewhere but i i do agree that like the opening is a little bit rough to get into some games aren't for everyone steven knows that i was not wild about undertale and <laughs> we're still friends and so. still not really it, it just didn't really like i think you enjoyed it enough that it didn't really fully yeah. resonate with you but the thing is you can still be homies and still post a podcast together if you don't like yeah, the same game i i don't resent you for it forever <laughs> uh no not yet no i i think like i i also recognize that like the things that i look for in games i would say like you know it's not a surprise like the genre i love the most is role-playing i'm someone who like seeks out games that give me that sense of agency so it makes sense that New Vegas would would work for me in that way. I will say, like Brendan, I still like Elder Scrolls more. I'll I'll, I'll drop the mic with that. I'm that, still that's more. Valid. I would rather hang out with high elves than ghouls. <laughs> um, actually, no, I actually I really take, wouldn't. Take that back. I really wouldn't. The high elves are jerks. Yeah. I would rather hang out with Argonians. Ghouls are good people. Ghouls are great. Yeah, um, I would like, say ghouls are above most of the elves for me, <laughs> but below Argonians. Um, and I have never played an Elder Scrolls game, so maybe this is like my chance to try one out. Because uh, is Oblivion on Game Pass? It's not, but you can buy it for like very little. Yeah. I would Venmo you to buy Oblivion <laughs> if you want. I also I, The thing about Oblivion is like, like there are some games where I'm so biased 
it's almost like a joke. Like I can't even like in good faith say like you should play Oblivion. I do think that game is is remarkable in a lot of ways, but it does you do need to be like here's here's the reason why I think you should play Oblivion. You really <laughs> like the YouTube channel Bacon that is just like a compilation of things that can happen Farewell. in Elder Scrolls games. So if you like that, Oblivion is just that as a game. It is a playable YouTube <laughs> playable channel. Playable Bacon channel. Yeah, exactly. I've been better. <laughs> exactly. I've been saying I've been better to myself like every day since I watched that video. <laughs> Ugh. Um, yeah, it's the same deal with Oblivion as with you as Earthbound with me. Like it's it's a game that I love so much and it like I fully acknowledge that sometimes it sucks to play and I can't put that on everyone but there are some people i will put it on exactly uh, yeah and i'd love to one day continue this new vegas conversation with you off mic or on so i feel the same way with that we're going to take a small break and then come back with some more video games bye 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 will steven i'm so used to saying brendan it's a will brill the one syllable really throws me off I promise you, dear listener, that the games selected today were truly just what both of us have been playing. This episode, I think, does read like a marquee of longly awaited bonuses that we're like teasing out. Longly awaited bonuses that would feature me as the guest. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think I think uh, we have, you know, loose plans. I don't know when. We did announce that uh, this month's bonus is going to be the Uncharted trilogy, uh, one through three. We're going to do four and Lost Legacy in a different episode eventually. Uh, and then October's is set. I think November's is still up in the air. But regardless, like it will probably not be immediate. Um, but we do have plans to eventually do Earthbound one day. I know it's ambiguous. And New Vegas, I think maybe you and I will do something at some point. But <laughs> it for now... It doesn't feel like I paid to be on this episode. Like, it, it feels like I, like, did a donation. It's like, it's a, <laughs> first of all, I'm sorry that that's how I'm making you feel. <laughs> that this is a transaction. Uh, it uh, It's like the patron option of, like, if you spend $100 a month, you can replace Brendan once every six months. <laughs> <laughs> i i asked you to do this so I, I don't think you should think that this was a, was this like a losing a bet yeah, so or winning so a contest it was pure coincidence that um i started playing fallout new vegas before you asked me to be on this and also i believe you got sick and started playing earthbound before yeah, you asked me to be on i this. did <laughs> i did Earthbound. i first played Back in college on my MacBook, I emulated it and then that MacBook stopped working and then there was really no way to play Earthbound for a long time. Uh, and then I started when it was announced that Earthbound was coming to the Super Nintendo Switch online collection. What is it actually called? I call it something different every time. It's not virtual console because that was like the old thing. No, it's I, I think it's just Nintendo Switch online Super Nintendo. Like I think it's just called SNES like in the menu got it i i just say like the switch collection that's what uh, th that sounds good to me the yeah. switch collection of snes <laughs> the snes lection ew that sucks <laughs> this is really bad aj maybe cut the that connection the connection the angle you said that was like fisheye lens 90s commercial like <laughs> hey kids you want to play with sand you know one of those <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of 90s toys were just like, 
hey, there was like a residual product that was created when we <laughs> when we manufactured all these action figures. We've got like a lot of dust and jelly. And they're like, what if we kind of in a Freudian way marketed this to young boys? We're like, hey, aren't you ready to, to spread this around? Um, it's weirdly fitting to talk about Earthbound and 90s gimmick toys. Yes. Because Earthbound's marketing was this game this stinks. stinks. Yeah. And, and there was like scratch a scratch and sniff. And sniff. Yeah. I, I don't, I think that actually hurt the, like, <laughs> it was like one of the more negatively received marketing campaigns. But Earthbound, I had started on the Switch and then, you know, kind of lost track of it and returned to it recently. I'm still not very far, but you and I and Brendan played through all of Mother 3 and Earthbound has been on my backlog for forever. And I'm about at the point where I got to when I first played it. Um, I'm loving it. I mean, I think it's interesting to talk about Earthbound alongside New Vegas because talk about like being a cult hit. This game came out and very kind of like mixed uh, reception in, in the U.S. at least did not sell very well, which is partially why it's so expensive and rare to find because, you know, there are only so many copies of it. I have a friend who has the box, the game and the instruction manual. And I'm like, if you ever just want to clear out your student debt, you can just sell that. <laughs> online and be be fine you want a house yeah do you want a house yeah it's like exactly but i i've been thinking about you know like what why was earthbound received the way it was in the 90s and, and i do think there was this there was this sense of like at least in the u.s especially that games had to sort of appear a certain way or like you know in the mid 90s especially in the late 90s every you know game had to sort of like kind of adhere to where graphics were at at that point like even games that like look great but were maybe 2d in the era of 3d that's actually a big thing as far as uh the dreamcast era which is later but you know the late 90s early 2000s there are a lot of really incredible games like street fighter 3 third strike that is now again considered the gold standard of street fighter but was met with sort of a lukewarm reception because it was a 2d game in the dawn of 3d and I just wonder if Earthbound was kind of a similar thing where like, this is the era of Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest and games like look a certain way. And Earthbound isn't like, it doesn't look bad, but it, like before Earthbound kind of became part of the canon of video games, I just wonder if that was like off-putting or confusing to a lot of people. You know, this game is such a, one, I think a big thing we were missing in the US is that something I'm, I'm realizing so much more about Earthbound now is how satirical it is of Dragon Quest. There are so many, like Earthbound really, in a lot of ways, feels like, you know, Fallout Elder Scrolls, not in the sense that it's dystopian, but it's taking a lot of sort of the fantasy and RPG tropes and filtering it through like, kind of like a child's view of the modern worlds, you know, where it's like everyone you talk to in the game kind of talks like a child making fun of an adult where it's like, blah, 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 I'm in charge, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, it, it has that kind of like unfiltered exaggeration. Like I just, I love the music that plays when you're in the police station. But when you're at home, it's like so beautiful and like, Ness's relationships with his parents feel like this dad is this like distant voice of authority yeah. and support and finance. He's a phone. Like in in the credits, he's literally like it shows up as dad, and it's just a a phone ringing. 
I also like how your sister becomes like an inventory management, you know, <laughs> option. Uh, but like your family is like, you know, how you save and how you heal and how you manage your inventory. But even just like the enemies you fight and like the way the hospital is like kind of the church, you know, I think like I, I don't know exactly the reception of, of Earthbound or Mother 2 in Japan, but I would guess just because Dragon Quest was like such a like, you know, fundamentally known game, like fundamental experience and like the definitive RPG that like playing a game like Earthbound, you can kind of see what it is a reflection of. Whereas I think in the US, we were more excited about maybe the future of RPGs, you know, like Chrono Trigger felt like this kind of Chrono Trigger and, and Final Fantasy VI games that came out around the same time as Earthbound feel like swan songs of that era. And then we get Final Fantasy VII a couple years later, and that begins this like new dawn of of games and of media in general and earthbound in some ways feels like this kind of like odd duckling of the group but i think that's again why it has endured why people are, have remained curious about it and why it has such a dedicated following because there there are now so many games that are kind of trying to capture this sort of strangeness and sweetness and darkness of earthbound i think i think the way the game balances tone is still remarkable. And that's something that I think, you know, I think the the clearest inspiration path from Earthbound to, you know, modern games is Undertale. And even after playing Earthbound and Mother 3, I kind of see Undertale and I'm like, man, it, it is really one-to-one -one in some cases. Like, I think Undertale is distinct in what it's trying to do and say about games and about, you know, the themes in Undertale. But the quirkiness and the dialogue owes its existence to Earthbound. It's actually something that I've enjoyed about Deltarune is I think you can see Toby Fox's voice kind of become more distinct and more their own in the follow-ups to Undertale. Uh, I, Undertale is still one of my favorite games of all time, but I think seeing where the influences <laughs> are, I'm like, oh man, it, it, is, it is close, yeah. you know? I think that's why I... I have always struggled with Undertale a little bit. It's because sure, like yeah. I have my home in those two games, Earthbound and Mother 3, and it's like I I always I feel like I could just be playing those. No offense to Undertale or Deltarune. That's how I feel a lot. I mean, we kind of talk about that a bit with Sea of Stars. We're like as much as I like Sea of Stars, saying that we're going to be like Chrono Trigger is like almost a doomed venture. And the same is true of of a lot like, you know, Earthbound I think over time has become amongst the pantheon of like that golden era of RPGs. You have Chrono Trigger, FF6 and Earthbound in some ways as like the three pillars of what could be you know ff6 feels like here's what came before chrono trigger feels like here's what's next and earthbound feels like here's what's in the unexplored space in our brain you know like or here's just like a different path here's a game that reminds us that fantasy can mean anything uh, it doesn't have to be knights or steampunk it can be or dragons or dragons. Even though I think there there's a kraken in <laughs> Earthbound, but yeah, you know what? That's what I mean. It really is so uh, psychedelic. Like it, it, that's something that I didn't because I I knew of Earthbound only through Smash Brothers as a kid. Like I knew Ness from Smash Brothers, but I'd never played them. And then when I finally did, I was like kind of amazed. I, I kind of assumed they were like kid friendly games given the design of Ness, but they're like very bizarre. 
and I, I wonder if, again, that's kind of partially why they didn't do well at launch was because, like, it's hard to know who the target audience or something like that is. And it's ironic that Undertale became such a huge mainstream hit uh, in the wake of, like, Earthbound and Mother in general being such, like, an underground thing. But anyway, I'd love to hear more about, like, how did you discover your love for this game? Um, so I actually played Mother 3 first. I was on AIM with a friend and I had been watching like Let's Plays here and there of Mother 3. I believe I had already played Brawl and like met Lucas for the first time and was like, who's that? So I wanted to play it and my friend uh, just, I actually talked about this a little bit on the Mother 3 episode, I think, but my friend sent me a over AIM Visual Boy Advance, the ROM and and the emulator and a ROM of Mother 3. And I played it that way and I loved it a lot, cried a lot, had a great time. We talked about it as an episode, but I afterwards I was like, well, I, I want to know what Ness's deal is and I want to play Earthbound as well. And so I believe I went out and found myself the SNES emulator that I cannot remember the name of, but it had, when you turn it on, there was snow in the background. Oh, I love that. Does that sound familiar at all? The one I used was SNES X, I think, but I don't know if it was that. Yeah, I truly cannot remember which one it was I used. But if you remember it, go ahead and tag me or something. But uh, I played through Earthbound. It was a lot harder. I did a lot more fast forwarding and I had way harder of a time playing it. But that's the other thing, too, about the Dragon Quest comparison, because I think early Dragon Quest games are like Dragon Quest V, for example, which is, I think, one of the best RPGs ever made, does just begin with you as a kid who can't read you just have to kind of get into trouble and you're going to get like wiped out constantly. Like you just have to like go into a cave as a child with like nothing to your name and just kind of grind for a bit. I don't say grind in a negative way, but I do think there's an expectation to grind at a level that games like Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger especially just don't expect you to do, you know, uh, and I think that 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 is sort of a bit of friction, even compared to Mother 3, which I think is kind of more of a uh, that game is also brutally difficult in some ways. But I think it is overall like more point A to point B. I think Earthbound begins with you just having to like kind of eat shit and on it for like a few <laughs> hours before enemies. Like, but then there's that feeling of like not only are enemies instantly defeated now when I walk over them, but they run away from me. And that's like a very impact. Like once you get to that, I think the demand of grinding and losing lessens a little bit, in my opinion. I think that's like you just kind of have to similar to Vegas, you have to like kind of trust the game a bit in those opening hours. And the game, both games, Mother 3 and Earthbound, do put in enemies that like you can fight once and they give you like a ton of experience. Um, yeah, so also like, like uh, the metal slimes are that in Dragon Quest. And yeah. I think a lot of games have followed suit in their own version of that where there's like a rare enemy that will bump you up like a million levels. Yeah, which is very helpful for stuff early on stuff like the Jealous Base or being in the moon side at all. I originally i still liked mother three way more i actually ended up writing an essay about both of them in high school i remember my teacher really liked it but i wrote about video games so many times in that class that he banned writing about video games forever <laughs> and um as i not a joke as of a few years ago i received word that the ban is still in effect and i graduated high wow. school in 2011 so like that's that is how serious it was that's um, hilarious but over time, I, I replayed Earthbound last year when it was added to the Super Nintendo. I've realized that I 
think there are a lot of elements of Earthbound I prefer. I like the more abstract nature of the story. I like the main characters a little bit more in that less is told to me about them and I can like make my own inferences. It, again, it, it feels like it has that almost archetypal uh, deconstruction of the archetypes in Dragon Quest, you know, yeah. where there's like the kind of, I mean, in a weird way, like, you know, Dragon Quest, there's always a chosen one. And this game, in some ways, Ness and his friends are the chosen ones, but it's almost by choice. You know, like there's that moment early on where they, you know, this, this, the inciting event is this like comet lands and it gives characters like psychic powers. And Ness and his neighbor, uh, Pokey or Porky, depending on how it's localized, venture over there. And there's a prophecy of like, you and your friends will save the world. And Porky just kind of just says, like, it's not, I'm not one of those people. Like, I just know it's not going to be me. And it's like one of the most tragic, like, especially knowing where that character ends up in Mother 3 and like, even in Earthbound, it is like, I, I've been thinking about that moment a lot in terms of like, is it actually true? Is this character realizing that his role is to be the villain and that he can't do this? Or is he kind of psyching himself into that? Is he like, it's like a self-defeating prophecy. And I think it's also telling that like Ness's house is this beacon of like warmth and support. And when you go into Pokey's house, it's like a horror show. It's like so disturbing. And the music is like, like, creepy and upsetting uh but like <laughs> upbeat you know like yeah and yeah i, I just I, I think that that is like a very uh again comparing it to dragon quest there is that sort of allegorical storytelling it almost was like a fable in some ways even as as like psychedelic as it is there is that kind of like beats of a dragon quest that's true i had a question about so i was talking to someone in the discord recently sorry i forgot your name but shout out to you about the character of <laughs> Pooh. Yeah, I was talking uh -huh. to Stephen Hilger um, about the character <laughs> of uh, Pooh. Have you met him yet in your playthroughs? No, I know he's the monk, right? But I, I haven't met him in my playthrough yet. Yeah. Uh, do you mind like knowing a little more about him? Please. We were talking about how that character is like any part of his character is absent. Like he doesn't really, he just joins, he shows up, he joins the party, he does, helps them like do the end game and then he leaves. And that's like his whole arc. And I actually thought it was really interesting how his motivation is like he abandons himself in the beginning of his arc. Like when he uh, sets out to join the quest, he gives his body and soul up to a divine being and becomes the mission. And is there wow. anyone like that in a Dragon Quest or a Final Fantasy? <laughs> that's, that's, that's basically like what I was thinking about while you were like talking about the big three of what was it final fantasy four and dragon quest five four i would put up there too i think like usually when you're talking about these kinds of games uh six originally released as three is like considered to be like the definitive final fantasy of this era and then chrono trigger is sort of this like super group of the teams behind both dragon quest and final fantasy in terms of if there's a character that like kind of erases their sense of self for the mission, I mean, there are many heroic sacrifices. Uh, there are also many villainous sacrifices. I think in a lot of ways, it's interesting to kind of position the Mother series and Final Fantasy alongside Dragon Quest. I think Chrono Trigger is kind of in a league of its own in terms of like the atmosphere and storytelling. But Final Fantasy and 
I think I would argue Final Fantasy has its roots. Like the first Final Fantasy game that I think feels like Final Fantasy as we know it is for uh, originally released as two in the US. <laughs> and that game opens with the main character questioning. Basically, it's the are we the baddies meme where it's like this dark knight on an airship that's like bombing villages. And he's like he and his his soldiers are like, this doesn't feel great. Like, why are we doing this? And the game actually doesn't let you control the character until he has a change of heart and questions his king. And a lot of that game is about redemption and about like kind of questioning the role of a king. And uh, and I think, you know, it's it might feel familiar today, but I think in 92 when that game came out, when most RPGs were just like very fairy tale esque in their depiction of like, Oh, the king has to be saved from the dragon and the wizards, you know, <laughs> kind of like very like straightforward. I think having a game where it's like really questioning that and and really uh, being a deconstruction. I think both Final Fantasy and Mother are games that are looking at sort of like if, if Dragon Quest is sort of like the definitive structure of a fantasy RPG, Final Fantasy, I think, found its identity by being kind of the edgy twin of that series it's like we're going to be the game that kind of says like well, what if the bad guy wins halfway through or what if the main character is a bad guy up until the point you know it's not just going to be the chosen one fights the evil monster uh, and i think dragon quest has a lot of beautiful narratives of its own in its own way but i think you know these early entries that's where i i, I see all these series distinguishing themselves and mother i think is a deconstruction in a very different way where it's not it doesn't have the edgy defiance of Final Fantasy, but it has that like, let's take that structure and really like think about it under a different, put it under a different lens. And I also think like in some ways when you're thinking about these characters as archetypes, you know, Ness is like the silent protagonist, you know, good boy with the baseball bat. <laughs> There's that moment where Paula, you know, calls out to Ness and is like kind of this like, you know, magical princess in some ways. And then Jeff, Paula and Jeff almost remind me of Luca and Marley in Chrono Trigger, where there's sort of like the princess and like the inventor best friend kind of roles. I think having the fourth character be not only a defiance of archetype. I mean, in some ways it's like very classic, you know, in Final Fantasy one, you can make a team of like fighter, healer, mage and monk right? Having a monk in the party of four is very like classic D and D, but having the character be a total rejection of archetype and of self, I think kind of shows what mother is doing and what earthbound is doing in terms of it's, it's satire or deconstruction of the genre. That would be my read on it at least uh, having not met Pooh yet, but that's kind of how I see it from a bird's eye view. Yeah. Pooh gets to the point where it it becomes a literal deconstruction of his character, like before yeah, he joins right. the party. So they really go on the nose with that metaphor. And I, so we talked about how Dragon Quest is like the quintessential RPG experience. Final Fantasy is a deconstruction of that RPG experience. No, or sorry, a uh, like a turning on its head, like an edgier RPG experience. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like a rebuttal is the word, you know, uh, or like a counter. And in that, it almost feels like Earthbound and Mother are, or Earthbound specifically, maybe not as much Mother 3, because there's like a really hardcore plot and the characters are invested in it. Mother 3, in a lot of ways, feels more Final Fantasy, where it's darker, yeah. it's it's a little bit more brooding, 
not that every Final Fantasy is like that, but I would say like, you know, if you were to compare Final Fantasy four and six to Dragon Quest, you know, of that same era, definitely edgier. Five is weirdly the, the and that's the thing. Eventually Final Fantasy turns from we're the edgy one to like, we're just going to do something completely different each time. And <laughs> that to me is very exciting. But Final Fantasy five is actually notably more lighthearted and more gameplay focused. So like, you know, there are exceptions, but you were saying about mother. I, I think earthbound is kind of a rebuttal of both of those things in that yeah. a lot of what I feel like earthbound, the four main characters are kind of just having experiences like stuff happens to them. And they kind of react to it or they like end up dealing with certain things in the the towns that they're going through just to get through them. Like there's something to the fact that there are these four kids that the whole world just kind of seems to be against and they just deal with whatever comes their way. No matter how absurd it is, they take it at face complete face value. And I I find that interesting in terms of like a, a big three like what you want out of an RPG. And in my most recent run of Earthbound, I thought a lot about Grant Morrison's run of Doom Patrol, where these heroes try and <laughs> they're they're trying to punch the absurd and like literally can't. And the situations end up almost resolving themselves just by them being present. And I think Earthbound's achieving a similar effect. I also think it's I, I think it's really effective. And I think something that, you know, uh I don't want to say imitators in a debasive or to debase games that take influence from Earthbound, but games that kind of like try to capture this style. I think the pitfall is to be a little bit too self-aware or irreverent to the point where the game feels like it's mocking itself. I think that the magic ingredient of Earthbound is the fact that it does, especially as you get further into it, it does feel like a high stakes adventure, yeah. you know? Like, I think when you first see the giant's footprint, that's like a great little, like, it's treated as this like very magical and mysterious moment that's like in the midst of like a police farce, you know? And I think like, I think that it does capture, I keep thinking about this game from like a child's point of view, but it does capture this childlike mentality of like kind of making a mockery of the world you know but there's this desire to see the world that you know exists beyond, you know, that like you've seen glimpses of. And it really does, I think, again, like I've mentioned many times how at a young age playing Final Fantasy VII for the first time opened my mind to what fantasy could mean because I was like, this game's in New Jersey. And like, I love that. And uh, I mean, not really, but like having it be like a modern urban fantasy and like an industrial environment but there was still magic and dragons and it somehow like all worked that really to me was more intriguing than like something that was more rooted in tradition like castles and dragons exactly and ironically you know that then becomes the foundation right i think like <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the games that came out after final fantasy 7 saw final fantasy 7 like a lot of the games we're talking about saw dragon quest so you know it's it's similar Something about the 90s was just like that time where like counterculture became mainstream. You know, Nirvana comes out and suddenly you get the Nickelbacks and Creeds, you know, Um, no shade. But you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) It did. I'll say one more thing about uh, Earthbound is um, this past week, um, Brendan and I went to see 2001 A Space Odyssey in theaters. And it was 
both of our first times watching it. I can't believe that. I'm so happy yeah. we both got to see it. Especially, I, mean, I feel like I, I told Brendan, I'm like, this is the most you movie that I know of that you haven't seen. So yeah. I, I thought he would enjoy it a lot. Yeah, we we both loved it. Like everything about it, um, especially the intermission. And I, I realized how much of the media I love, like draws parallels and like draw can you can draw a line back to uh 2001 a space odyssey oh yeah that's what i mean it's one of those like there are some pieces of media that you experience them and you're like oh my god that's what that eight you know especially in 2001 the whole like dun, 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 dun. obviously a classical song but like i saw that in like tiny tunes for the first <laughs> time you know like it was referenced so much, but by the time I see the original source, I'm like, oh, that's why this has become like <laughs> a thing in culture, you know? Exactly. And I think there is like so much of Earthbound or at the, the last two acts of 2001. I, I do feel that so much of Earthbound can be like drawn and attributed to it. Like even um, in the last act when uh, I think it's Dave is... You know, I just realized I was about to spoil 2001 A Space Odyssey, and maybe there are people who haven't seen it. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll heads, refrain. Heads up, 2001. No, I think make your point. We can put a yeah. spoiler tag here. Yeah. Well, I, I was already in the last act of the film, spoilers for 2001, when Dave is going through all the psychedelic visions at, like, in the, the, the Beyond the Infinite. Yeah. Uh, I was like, wow, this reminds me a lot of how Earthbound ends. And... The, in that there are literally the little like you know the the diamond shape that like some enemies become later yeah. in the game like those diamond shapes that are spinning around in those visions are enemies in earthbound like that's what they look like <laughs> in the overworld so it was yeah. to the point where like even like i mean it's not like uh 2001 invented diamond shapes for psychedelic imagery but i i don't know i was floored by <laughs> how Easily, I drew a parallel between those two things and how something so dark and mysterious and terrifying as 2001 can inspire a game for children. <laughs> well, I think um, shout out to uh, our, our good friends, Adam and Dom at the Eye of the Duck podcast. Uh, they've been doing a whole mini series about 80s dark fantasy. And a point they keep returning to is actually a Jim Henson quote uh, re referencing the Dark Crystal, which is like, you know, one of the darker Jim Henson films that exists he was like, it's okay. It's weird to say this out loud, but he based his whole point was like the media that children consume, like it's okay to have moments that are actually scary or that like show them that evil can exist. You know, your, your goal shouldn't be to like traumatize children. But I do think, you know, when you go back to like the classic fairy tales and all that, like sh you should treat uh, uh, an audience of children with respect. I mean, I imagine when they made Earthbound, they were thinking of a younger audience. I think it can be enjoyed by anybody, but it does feel like it was made from a child's point of view. And I mean that as a compliment. And I do think that the best media that we like remember from our childhoods is media we can enjoy as adults. And often it's because they do tap into that feeling of the unknown. And that can be really good or really bad. I think, you know, um, I love Spirited Away for that reason. I mean, I think a lot of Miyazaki's films have that balance of, you know, some of them are, are sweeter than others. I think Kiki is like, you know, a fairly happy movie, but even that movie deals with like burnout and like, you know, <laughs> what happened. That movie becomes more and more relatable to me where it's like, what happens when your passion becomes a paycheck? You know, <laughs> like 
I watch that movie a lot when I'm feeling kind of sapped creatively. Shout out to Gene Garofalo, who is like the artist in the woods, who is my hero. But Spirit Away, I think, is a movie that like captures that truly dreamlike feeling and also that sort of childlike perception where things you're not sure what certain things are yet. So they veer between being familiar and being hostile. You know, I think it's telling that in Earthbound, a lot of the enemies who fight early on, when you defeat them, it's like they became normal. You know, or like they became tame. They, yeah. they stopped moving. They disappeared into thin air. Like your fears like vanish. Yes, exactly. You can read that as like, maybe we're not actually fighting, but we're like processing who these people are. And what I love about Spirit Away is without spoiling, this will not be a spoiler. Uh, a lot of the <laughs> characters have these doubles, you know, characters will sort of like alternate between being really awful to Chihiro the our hero in the film and also helping her and we're never quite sure why but there's that feeling of mystery and i think there is a connection between stories like that and a story like 2001 that is all about like what lies beyond what we know it's kind of an adult continuation of that childhood sense of wonder yeah it's occupying a bunch of spaces where some people want to help you and some people want to hurt you and often they're very difficult to distinguish in new vegas you can be good or bad uh <laughs> on that note do you think we should yeah, wrap up i want to i want to join the boomers <laughs> Yo, i want to join the boomers Speaking of stuff aging, like jump cut back to New Vegas, but speaking of stuff aging, it is wild how the xenophobic tribe that is too set in their ways to like accept any new people or change anything and viciously attacks anyone they deem as like an outsider threat is called the boomers. <laughs> I forgot about that. They're they're just like in an airport like yeah, area in- with like a bunch of rockets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And when you talk to them, they're like, oh, sorry about that. We just like, you know, by default, shoot rockets outside. <laughs> sorry for almost I think, killing you. Doesn't someone give you like the exact steps you have to take to avoid their fire? Much. There are two times in that game where where someone runs up to you and is like, hold the fuck up. You are going to die if you walk any further and like tells <laughs> you about what's going on. And one of them is Quarry <laughs> Junction with the Death Claws. And the other one is a man who gives you the steps to avoid the boomers missiles because he's been watching them. <laughs> and he's just, he, I think his reasoning is he's just sick of seeing people get blown up and he's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. <laughs> These people are going to send you gifts about the days of the week and they watch Forrest Gump all day. It's the only movie they have. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I'm excited to re-meet the boomers in my in my next playthrough. Yeah, there's a. I feel like there are parallels that can be drawn between both of those games, but that's <laughs> that's another high school essay that I never wrote. <laughs> that would get the topic banned from then on. <laughs> Was anyone resentful of you? Were they like, "Damn, yes. Will got to write about"? Yeah, I, I wrote about Earthbound and Mother Three, and then Majora's Mask, and then because of that, video game essays got banned completely. And you probably um, also bummed your teacher out. He's like, "God, this is what games are like." I thought they were like a fun Mario. It's like yes verbatim yes and uh, a friend of mine had been waiting his whole high school career to write an essay about the game shout out to my friend andrew to write an essay about the game alpha centauri and then found out that video game essays were banned when he got to that class because of me oh my god so it's it's there (laughs) uh will i want to thank you again for joining me today this will not be the last time we have you on unlike your essay in high school this will not be the (laughs) 
the end of game discussion. I, I would even wager that we'll talk about both these games again in some way. And yeah, uh, just I had a great time talking with you. Thank you for having me on. Where can people find you and your work if you want to plug that? I do photography and some writing and music and whatever else on the Instagram account Ghost Down Photo. Yeah. Hell yeah. I also want to thank you again for the incredible theme you made for us. I think, uh, you know, it's been long enough now. Like I, I figured the feedback would be good, but it is daunting to change a theme after several years. And the fact that like all I've heard is praise means that you did a great job. And I know you did, but I'm glad we're like, you know, because when we changed it in season two, everyone was like, I like the first one more. I'm like, God, <laughs> fuck. So we did I, it. I really appreciate the the hype, y'all. Thank you. And yeah, I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger, Stephen Hilger Art. I'm probably going to be less on X these days. Just like <laughs> it continues to be more and more of a nightmare. I feel like calling it Twitter is almost like a distant wish. You know, it's like this feels like it died and is now something else. But I, I'll still like plug the show there and stuff for the time being. I think we're, you know, Brendan and I are feeling it out. Like also let us know where you want us. I think, you know, we're more interested in like, being where most of our listeners are, but we have, we have, uh, you know, pages everywhere. Uh, if you go into the cast that online, you can find all our social media stuff. And, uh, for me, Stephen Hilger art, as well as my personal website. Anyway, uh, that's it. I guess I feel, uh, I, I'll, I'll say it. I'm never like fully comfortable wrapping up. It's like my biggest weakness as a host is wrapping up and all these years we've been doing the show it's always like a little i don't because i don't like saying the same exact thing so it's always a little bit different but then it becomes weird because i don't have like that set like professional host routine you know you got to come up with a sign-off hook <laughs> but just then get it's a soundboard be... and play mario noises i know it's gonna be smell you later and like that's not great either you know mm. for this episode it could work because we talked about earthbound that's true Smell you later. You stink. Yeah, ugh, never mind. <laughs> this show stinks. How about that? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Will, for joining me. Have a wonderful <laughs> rest of your day. And thank you, AJ, for editing this kind of slightly cursed episode where we lost an hour of recording. Truth is, the podcast was rigged from the start. <gasps> that's, that's an outro. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Worst garbage, the online.